So this morning we're going to be starting a new series on the Minor Prophets. We're not going to be going through all of them like Pastor went through a few years ago. We're just going to hit a few of the ones that we may have not paid as much attention to. I certainly am guilty of this where I've just kind of read through them and not taken the time and done a little bit of a deeper dive on them. So hopefully this will prove fruitful. And if there are any of the Minor Prophets that you're like, hmm, I really want to hit that one in particular. Let me know, and we can accommodate that as well. Before any of that, we'll begin with the invocation and the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so before we get actually into the text itself, I think it's helpful for us to look at the overview on just the page previously on 1456. This is just a really wonderful thing that the Lutheran Study Bible has. It kind of gives you an overview. Okay, here's the time frame. Here's what's going on. Here's what Luther wrote on it. So we're actually going to begin reading through what Luther has to say on Amos, on page 1456. Amos 1 1 does specify his time. He lived and preached in the days of Hosea and Isaiah. He attacks the same vices in idolatry or false sanctity as does Hosea, and he also forewarns of the Assyrian captivity. He is violent, too, and denounces the people of Israel throughout almost the entire book until the end of the last chapter, where he prophesies of Christ and his kingdom and closes his book with that. No prophet, I think, has so little in the way of promises and so much in the way of denunciations and threats. Chris, you'll like this book. He can well be called Amos, that is, a burden, one who is hard to get along with and irritating, particularly because he is a shepherd and not one of the order of prophets, as he himself says in chapter 7. Besides, he comes out of the land of the tribe of Judah from Tekoa into the region of Israel and preaches there as a foreigner. It's for this reason that they say the priest of Amaziah, whom he rebukes in chapter 7, beat him to death with a club. And so Luther continues on and urge you to read that, and we'll cover some of these topics as we go. But so here, as we are going to be making our way through the first maybe two chapters, we'll see how far we get. It's just denunciation against a monk, denunciation upon denunciation of God's going to judge you, you're wicked, God is sending fire to you. Let's move on to the next country. Who wants seconds? He's just laying it on time after time, and we'll see this as we go on throughout here. But a little bit of the time frame, as you see, dating around 792 to 740. We'll see this in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. He kind of dates it during the time of Jeroboam II and Uzziah, during that kingdom. And then also, I found this in the study Bible on page 529. You don't need to turn there. But it gives a helpful time frame of Okay, this is the king during these times. Here are the prophets that were going around. Here's when this was written. And so it's kind of a helpful kind of bit, or zoomed out overview of, okay, 
Amos was during the time of these other prophets. They were walking around. Here's the kingdoms. Here's what was going on. So that can be another helpful tool here. But as we go through here, we'll see, especially starting in chapter 1, we see the Lord as this roaring lion. And we'll see this all throughout. And the Concordia Commentary, the author uh, Reed Lessing, has just a wonderful way with words and pulling out different things. And so I'll be relying on him for a few quotations that we'll be reading from, along with Luther, as Luther always has something nice to say or calling certain people out. So we'll read from some of those. But Lessing pulls a quote from C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so this is whenever Mr. and Mrs. Beaver have this conversation with the children about the Christ figure who is Aslan. And so it goes, is, is he a man, asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. So he pulls this, and he has this to say about Amos and the Lord. Yahweh certainly isn't safe. He is terrifyingly dangerous for sinful people. Yet he is also good and gracious toward all who trust in him. There are biblical images that depict Yahweh as a caring shepherd, mighty redeemer, and some verses even compare him to a mother who nurses her infant children. But the, but the church dare not let these images remove the claws and fangs of the lion who roars from Zion, as we'll see in Amos. Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, quoting Revelation 5.5. 5. His words have teeth and his voice is like a roar. The world, the devil, and the old Adam continue to urge the baptized to clip the claws of the lion and clean up his bloody passion. So he just has his marvelous way of words with that, better than any way I could have put it. But we'll see this roaring lion of the Lord against these sinful and wicked nations. And so while he is a roaring lion, he is good, he is gracious to those who love him, but a healthy dose of fear is also important, lest we be like these wicked nations that we'll see as we move on. And so throughout the book, especially in these first five oracles that we'll see, he's speaking of the pagan nations, you know, pronouncing the judgment upon them and how they've broken the moral law that is written on their hearts. And so he shows throughout this how God is also the God of the universe. He's not just the God of Israel. Whether you believe in him or not, he's still their God. It's just a matter of if you're going to be on the right side of the kingdom or not, come judgment. And so here we'll see that they are, God is also their God, and they are answerable to him for the wickedness that they have committed. And so Amos, he just cleverly pulls all this, and then he also ends with a crescendo of the judgment upon Israel. And we'll see how he uses rhetorical devices to kind of build up to that. But throughout, he's going to be giving a lot of geography. And so I printed off a map and highlighted, you can just pass those around, 
highlighted these cities, or these countries that he is speaking judgment against. And so the tool that he uses is, so there's the northern and the southern kingdom that we have. We have Israel to the north and Judah to the south there. And so as he's going to be flip-flopping through these, he first starts with Damascus, and then he moves on to Gaza, then Tyre, then Edom, then Ammon, Moab, then Judah, and then finally crescendos with Israel there. And so Lessing points out that he's actually kind of closing in upon Israel here. And so he's starting with Damascus, and he flips, he flips back and forth to the nations that would be bordering Judah and the nations that would be bordering Israel. And so as he's going back and forth, he's first starting out with ones that don't really have any kind of ethnic relations with Israel. They're kind of the fur- on the furthest edges of them. And so Israel's hearing all these judgments of the Lord's going to send fire, and they're like, yeah, you go get them. They're super happy, and then it starts, he starts closing in. And so as he gets closer and closer, then he gets you know, to Moab, then he gets to Judah, and they're still pretty excited of, yeah, you go get them, you know, pronounce judgment. And then finally, well, you too, Israel, are going to be judged. And so he's kind of closing this gap. And Lessing also, there's another theologian that he quotes in there. It would have been military tactics that he's kind of the specific layout of you would have started with Damascus and then how a military would have conquered Israel. They would have gone in this specific order is the way that he puts it forward of kind of the Lord conquering all of these nations, sending that judgment, that fire, and that destruction upon them. So he's kind of closing in the trap as we go. And we'll see this as we move along in here. But that's just kind of a good overview, keeping that map in front of you to kind of orient yourself of, okay, where are we at in relation to Israel? Where are all these different nations at? So it's a good one to keep in front of you. And with that, we'll go ahead and kind of get started in the text if there's any other questions though, that I can field beforehand. All right. So Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So here we have the very beginning of the words of Amos, and Amos in the Hebrew is meaning to carry, or to kind of carry this burden is kind of how it would be translated. And so his, the Hebrew names carry this meaning. We have Adam, Adam, meaning man. We have all this wordplay that's going on in the Hebrew of then the Adamah is the ground. And so Adam was formed, Adam was formed from Adamah, the ground. And so we have all this wordplay that's going on, and word names have a very specific meaning a lot of times. So you have Amos, the one who must carry this burden or carry this news of judgment upon these nations. So we have that even built into his name here. So we have the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, Tekoa, we have that highlighted on the map. If you look at Judah, just above that highlight, it's five miles or so south of Bethlehem. So in that region is where he is from. 
Whenever we think of shepherds, we kind of think of, you know, just these lowly guys out in the field, maybe tending a few sheep. But the word that's used here isn't the normal word for shepherd. You'll see the little number one note in your text or in your study Bible. It says, or sheep breeders. And so this specific title for him is only used elsewhere in 2 Kings 3 for the king of Moab, and he delivers 100,000 lambs and 100,000 rams. And so that's the title that's used for him. And so at least Lessing points out, and this I'm pretty convinced of it too, denotes some kind of possible wealth or some, you know, he's not just this lowly shepherd that's kind of out to be hired for a few sheep or something like that. He has some substance to him. And likewise, we see that with him knowing all these things that are going on in all these different nations, of all these tragedies that they are committing against the people of Israel. And so he knows all these political things that are going on. He's potentially of some great wealth here. So he's, this is who we are speaking of. And so the words of Amos, which he saw, so denoting some kind of possible vision of this vision from the Lord, saw concerning Israel in the days of these kings two years before the earthquake. And so there's some archaeological evidence, and they are pretty sure of the date of this earthquake is in 760 B.C. And so the time that he's writing this, 758, right around that time, is whenever he's speaking, or at least writing this part. And so it's a well-enough known earthquake that it's even quoted in Zechariah 14.5. He makes mention of the earthquake. It's kind of like how, you know, you can say the flood, or at least in Oklahoma, we have May 3rd is like the biggest, one of the biggest tornadoes that we have. And that's all you say. You just say May 3rd. Everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. And so this had to be some huge earthquake enough for them, him to just be able to say, the earthquake. And everyone know. oh yeah, he's talking about that one. And so this is the one that he is speaking of here, in which they believe happened in 760. So that is the time frame in this bit of a little introduction here. And then we get into the actual, what the Lord had spoken to Amos to say to the nations in verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. So here in the Hebrew, that very beginning of the Lord roars from Zion, we have a switching of the word order that is going on. And so at the very first, we have Yahweh, the Lord. So he's fronting that for emphasis of the Lord from Zion roars. So we have that language of the roaring lion that's used also in Isaiah. And so this is a roar to frighten, to scare the nations, as opposed to a growl, which is to devour. So you have the growling of devouring a nation, but here it's the roar to frighten, to call them to repentance, to tell them of the impending judgment upon them. So Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds mourn. So even the creation itself is mourning. The sin of these nations has infected the pastures to the point where even they are 
mourning out there, crying out for the atrocities that they have committed. And the top of Carmel withers. So Carmel is in the northern kingdom, as we see in our study notes. It's notorious for Baal worship. So the fact that it withers, the study note says, it can, uh, in, the verb and image it conveys effectively ridicule Baal, the Canaanite storm god. Carmel, the peak dedicated to this phony lord of rain and fertility, would soon be parched and bare. And so this so-called you know, fertility area, this highly fertile place that this Canaanite god is at, and it's just lush and green, well, that's going to wither away to nothing here. Thus says the Lord in verse 3. And so here we get the first oracle. So he actually, I misspoken earlier, he actually, actually has eight here. So this gets us into the first one. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sludges of iron. So here we get the start of kind of his repetition that we're going to see all throughout these oracles here of three transgressions and for four. So what do we make of that? Luther has one point where Actually, it was Jerome that had something to the effect of, for the four sins, the first is a thought of sin, the second is a decision to sin, the third is the act itself, and the fourth is impenitence. But Luther comes back and says, well, these seven, these four plus three transgressions are really this one great transgression. So we have the number seven being this completeness of them. So this complete sin, this complete transgression that they are holding to of because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sludges of iron. And so even the commentators note, you know, everyone kind of has their own theory about what does he mean by three transgressions and for four? But either way, you know, he's only really naming this one great sin of this, that they have threshed Gilead so he's kind of focusing in on this one transgression of theirs. So it's for that that I will not revoke the punishment. So he's not going to rescind that punishment. It is going to be carried out for the sin that they have committed. So in verse 4, So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. So here we get the first mention of fire. And so in each of the seven first oracles, we have the Lord saying that he is going to send fire, this judgment that we see in, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, this complete wiping out, this annihilation of them. But interestingly, in the eighth, we don't, whenever he speaks of Israel, we don't see that fire. But yeah, as we'll see, Amos spends a lot more time denouncing Israel for all the sins that they have committed. And so we'll look at that here in a few moments. But here we'll see this repetition continue to go on as he just hits nation after nation for all their, all their atrocities. So he will send fire upon the house of Hazael, which is the king of Syria. Verse 5, I will break the gate bar of Damascus. So here on your map, it's in the upper right hand. That's where we're moving in Damascus. So that's the first oracle against them. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, 
and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and him who holds the scepter from Bethadin, and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr. So we have this gate bar of Damascus, which would have been sealing off the gate, protecting the city. I mean, you had these giant walls around the city, and once you break through the gate, well, conquering the city is pretty much imminent at that point. You've broken down their defenses. So the Lord is saying, I will break the gate bar of Damascus. So he will cut off the inhabitants. He will destroy them from the valley of Avon. So the Hebrew there of Avon is this vanity, this emptiness. So he will destroy them from the valley of emptiness, from the valley of vanity. He will wipe them out. The one who holds the scepter from Bethadon, the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr. For Kerr, no one really quite knows where exactly it is. People have different theories. Not quite sure on that, but I mean, all these, all these places have pretty much gone away with, and so some of the evidence has been lost there, going into exile to Kerr. So are there any questions on this first oracle as we move on? We'll um, when it kind of dawns on me, when you said four, it says three and then four, it reminds me of um, when we're in the divine service, you know, thought, word, deed. Mm-hmm. Those are the three. And then the fourth would be unrepentant. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what it means then, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. That's what kind of, that's the impression I'm getting, right? Yeah, and then it's, even from there, kind of this, again, this building up of, these three transgressions, and for four. So yeah, he's heightening this all the more. Yeah, the fourth is the unrepentant. So, mm-hmm. so th- that's why the judgment, that's why he says don't bother pray because you're unrepentant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's an interesting connection with the divine. I like that. Of, yeah, thought, word, and deed. It's built in there. So that's a great thing about these, all these numbers. You know, especially in the Old Testament, it's just rich with that especially as we'll see as we go on in Amos, they're very much in tune to the importance of these numbers and tying it in. And so we'll see that as we move on here. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts? How old is he? How old? How old is he? I don't know if there's really any indication. Pastor, do you know? In my study, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it seems like he's just kind of coming on the scene here. And so all we get is really the dating of it's during the time of these kings. But, I mean, if he does have this kind of wealth or, you know, some renowned here of these great number of livestock, then probably a little older. But that's all pure speculation there. Do you, do you know if, did he, did these things come, these proclamations, were they written or were they pronounced and then written later? And did he talk to the people? How did he proclaim this? How do these prophets do this? Uh, my, that my question is, did he write them out and then send letters out to the leaders? Or, or is it just something just stands up and sells it at a city square in the city town and yells this out? For that, I'm not really sure how they would have. Yeah, because it's, you know, all these different nations here. I mean, it's not like the epistles, you know, where it's written to this one church and he goes and delivers that to the Corinthians to whip them into shape. And so, yeah. I'm 
suffering is, is God's trying to warn them, but how does he, he do, he's doing it by, I know by writing it, but then how does it get out? I mean, it's, that's, that's our question mm-hmm. is. Right now onto the second oracle into Gaza. So this is going to be lower left, right along the Mediterranean Sea, just next to Judah. There's where we're at. And so again, up in the northern kingdom, out in that outskirt, now down into the southern. Again, still far away from Israel here. So in verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. So here again, he's following the same pattern. For three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So here the transgression that they committed is they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them over to Edom. So Edom's going to come up quite a bit. And it's going to come up several times here before Amos is actually speaking against Edom, but they're kind of guilty of quite a bit of even just receiving this whole people that was delivered to them in exile here. So again, we see the Lord saying that he will send a fire. So that's the second instance of that, and it shall devour her strongholds. Verse 8, I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod and him who holds a scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So here we have this cutting off, the similar language from verse 5. But then here we also see, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish. And so remnant plays a key, key part in the Old Testament of the Messianic prophecy of this remnant will be preserved. And so here he's saying the remnant of the, Fer- of the Philistines shall perish. So there's going to be no hope. They're going to be completely wiped out, completely annihilated. There is no coming back from this. Not even one little person is going to be left, this remnant. So there's no hope for the Philistines coming out of this impending judgment of fire. Again, Israelites cheering them on. Yep, yeah, those bad Philistines, you know, they delivered us up in the exile, all this stuff. Yeah, you go get them, Amos. So now we get into Oracle 3. So here we're up in Tyre, again, northern kingdom, up next to the Mediterranean Sea. You have Damascus, and then just move straight over along the sea there. For three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Very similar language. Because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. Uh Uh-oh, Edom, you're popping up again. 
So it seems like they didn't actually capture, but Tyre being them, they didn't capture, but they delivered up this whole people. So they're kind of this broker. They're the middleman in this. So they receive these people and they deliver them over to Edom. So they are guilty of that. And they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So some kind of pact that they had with the other nations there. So I will send fire, a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Oracle 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So now Amos is going after Edom in particular here, of that he will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword. So here we have the study note in 1.6 that the Edomites actually descended from Esau, if you'll remember. And so we have Esau and Jacob, Jacob later being named Israel, from which the nations come. And so from his brother, because he pursued his brother with the sword. So the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, pursued his brother, that is Israel, with the sword. So they are guilty of that, and they cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. So again, Israelites, pretty happy now of, yeah, the Edomites, you know, the descendants of Esau pursued us with the sword, all this stuff. Yeah, you go get them. But again, we're slowly closing in on the trap. We tighten the noose upon them. Edom is getting closer and closer, wrapping all around them. So we just want to pause there before we continue on. I know this is all very cheery. Amos isn't really doing the whole law gospel distinction, letting the gospel predominate 51% here. He's just letting them have it one after another. Chris is just back there grinning from ear to ear. He's loving this. He's my kind of man. I like his action and words. Not afraid. Not afraid. All right, so Oracle 5 against the Ammonites. Ammonites look at Israel, move slightly southeast from there, is the region of Ammon. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So the Ammonites are from the daughter, one of the daughters of Lot. And you'll remember that whole escapade of Lot's daughters getting him drunk, sleeping with him, and that's where we get the descendants of the Ammonites from them. And then in chapter 2, we'll see with the Moabites from his other daughter. So we have these descendants of these wicked nations coming out from there. But then Lessing has an interesting, uh, interesting commentary about they who have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead. So he has just a sobering remark given what our nation is doing through the atrocities of abortion. And so he writes, These ancient practices of murdering children in utero 
of infanticide, infanticide can be compared to the modern tragedy of abortion, which murders the child in the womb, and to the growing modern acceptance of selective infanticide. In stark contrast to these barbaric human sins, Yahweh promises that his reconstituted and renewed Israel, that is the Christian church, will nurture the weak and vulnerable people in the community, the blind, the lame, pregnant women, and women in labor. From the earliest days of the church, Christians have renounced abortion. The Didache, which is in the second century, so in the 100s, explains the second table of the Ten Commandments, including the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, by including prohibitions to abort, saying, you shall not murder a child by abortion, neither shall you kill a born child. So even in that second century time, calling out this great atrocity that was going on. Lesson continues, instead, Christians cherish all human life from the moment of conception to life's natural end, since God is a creator and redeemer of everyone. So he continues on, he's speaking of Yahweh's response to this is to, to have fire. And here, Amos ex- employs the verb kindle fire instead of sin fire. Both convey the same idea. The synonym here is an example of what linguists term internal variations with a schematic pattern. Not important. But unlike any of the other oracles, Yahweh adds to fire the judgments of storm and tempest. Great storm is sometimes associated with a theophany as a revealing of the Lord when Yahweh appears on his day to execute judgment. So he has that interesting note added upon this, as we'll see in verse 14, is this storm and tempest as a result of this heinous act of ripping open pregnant women. So why they would do this is, well, if you don't have children, you can't continue on as a nation. And so knocking them out from the very beginning of wiping out these people. They can't have these kids, therefore their kingdom won't continue. It was all for the sake of extending their own, their own kingdoms here. And don't we see that today of, well, we can't have, you know, anyone with any kind of special needs or anything like that. We've got to have everyone all perfect or, you know, genetic engineering or all that stuff that's going on of, well, your kid may have a defect, so therefore they aren't, they aren't valuable. You know, people don't talk that way, but they do that, that very same thing. They may not admit it, but the very same thing goes on. Pastor and I were reflecting just the other day of around here, you know, you don't see people with special needs. I mean, growing up in the Midwest, we had people all around. That was a normal occurrence, you know. They were just part of the family. Everyone at your family gatherings, that was just a normal thing. But here, we were just reflecting, you don't see that as much. So we see that, you know, with this, I mean, thinking back, isn't that true? That you don't see it as much around here. So just that atrocity of, you know, kind of wanting to build this image and getting in, you know, the tragedy of abortion to carry on that, that idea here. I don't mean to get too caught up in the weeds here, but... I think Lessing had a good, good insight there of the, the Lord is specifically calling out this atrocity from the nation of Edom, or from the Ammonites here. And so we should also be aware of 
the atrocities that are going on in our very lands as a result of this. So they're doing this that they're, they might enlarge their border. So I will, send a fi- I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. So we have the finishing off of this fifth oracle here. So any thoughts, comments as we continue on? I think we got one up here. On Monday night, our pastor gave the men's group a perspective on, on you know, the sexual act between a husband and a wife as we, we are invited into God's creation effort we are to procreate to go into the world and multiply and you know that's been uh, uh, deviated from in many ways you know uh, uh, fornication uh, you know, but now we're talking about abortion we're talking about the old way in which abortion was done and it's mm-hmm. just you know we're we're going against God's created order in which mm-hmm. he wants things to be done and just that just jumped back at me or jumped out at me. Yeah. Just a complete distortion, upheaval of how God had intended things to be. And how he still created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're interrupting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Any other thoughts, reflections on that? Right? Now into chapter 2, we get into the sixth oracle to Moab in the southeast corner of your map there, in the southeast of Judah. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So that really struck me as odd of why is it burned to lime. That's why a commentary is helpful is that the soil, soil there was a lot of limestone within it. And so to burn to lime is to burn it to the dust, and to kind of return it back to that, that lime or that limestone in the soil. So that's what meant not the green fruits that are hanging on your trees. It's not burning it to a lime that way. We burn the, kings, burn the bones of the king of Edom. And so it's just this ultimate destruction. There's, there's nothing left. It's just dust. Burned him to dust at that point. Verse 2, So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Right, so now, again, Israelites are all happy as can be. You get them. We'll read here in a minute. Lessing had a funny insight into their thought process. And now we get into the nation of Judah here. So thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord. So while all these other nations have acted in just completely awful ways, is here that, you know, the other nations, they acted shamefully, but they acted 
again, according to their own shameful pagan nature of that, even though it is against God's natural law and the moral law within us. But here, Judah, they've rejected the law of the Lord. And so they went against the law of God. You know, they weren't these, this pagan nation who just acted as sinful pagans would, but rather this was the people of Judah rejecting the law. They have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after, those after which their fathers walked So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So again, Israel's pretty happy with this. And Lessing just has such a funny interaction. I just was cracking up while I was reading it, of just getting into the thoughts of them, of the Israelites. Wow, Amos, they would have been reading this. From 1.3 to 2.5, Amos' northern Israelite audience in all likelihood, cheered and applauded after each neighboring nation was condemned. Great preacher, this Amos, was a mantra of the moment. The speech builds to a climax as four, five, then six pagan nations are placed under divine fire. With the next fiery judgment upon Judah, the number reaches seven. The people could then safely assume that the law part of the sermon had come to an end, and only comforting gospel would follow. Then the audience could conclude, all is well that ends well. It was probably time for the ironic benediction, the general dismissal, and then the normal post-service discussion of the events of the week, a bit more chit-chat, and then it would be time to go home. But Amos wasn't done preaching. The roaring lion was not yet silent. The ravaging fire had not yet reached its goal, Israel. So here we get this wonderful insight of, you know, the Israelites reading this up. Yeah, you go get them. You know, great, great job, great preaching. You know, that, that great law. Because, you know, he's reached seven. That's kind of the number of completeness. You know, that's, that's the whole, whole wholeness of it. Of, that's the complete judgment of God. Culminated in Judah, our biggest foes. Yes, great. You get them. And now, shower us with praises. But then, what does Amos do? Verse 6, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar. So again, he's calling out to the nation of Israel for selling the righteous for silver, needy for even just a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor, the dust of the earth. And then he calls out their spiritual adultery here, as well as their physical adultery. A man and his father go into the same girl. So that is an obvious physical adultery, this profanity that is going on. So that his holy name, my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar. And so here we get Lord speaking of this spiritual adultery that is going on. Not only is it bad enough that you're going into the same woman, but here you're laying aside at every altar, laying beside all these pagan altars. So we have this relationship, and we'll see this as we continue on, 
of the Lord saying, I've done all these things for you, and this is how you're treating me. You not only go into the same girl, you not only commit physical adultery, but you're laying aside beside every altar that you come to, just doing these atrocities against my name. And we see this same image in Ezekiel 16. It was reading through this a couple months ago, and it was just really vivid imagery. If you want to turn there to Exodus 16, starting in verse 8. And so we have the language of the Lord, kind of the same idea of, I've done all these things, and this is how you're treating me here. So the Lord's saying, I spread the corner of my garment over you, and speak into the nation of Israel, and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. And I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. Continues on of all these things that he has done for them. And then verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made him for yourself the colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver, which I have given you, and made for yourself images of men. And he continues on of all these things that they have done. So we have the same language here of, I've done all these things for you, and this is how you're repaying me of laying beside all of these altars. So we get this beautiful insight into the relation of the Lord with his chosen people. And we'll continue on, and we'll see this brought out even further as we go on. And also just another side note back in Amos 2.8. I don't know why it says, and in the house of their God, capital G, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Seems like it should be lowercase g there, given what he's speaking of. So don't know if that's just a typo or what? Continuing on in verse 9. Yet it was I. So here we have an emphatic or an emphasis in the Hebrew. So it's I myself who destroyed the Am- Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. So I have done this. I destroyed the Amorites before them. And I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. So again, this, I myself have destroyed. I have done all these things. Verse 10, And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And so here we start to see the Lord speaking in the second person of, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. With all the other previous nations, all the judgments that he's giving, it's, I will destroy the nation of Gaza, all these nations, I will destroy them. But the Lord here now brings it closer of, I brought you, I've done this for you, my chosen people, my holy nation. And this is what you've done in response. This is how you're thanking me for all of these things. So he brought them up out of the land of Egypt, this great salvific event for the nation of Israel. And he's led them 40 years in the wilderness. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. 
Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Just again, calling them to task here of, have I not done that? Don't you remember the whole salvific event of the Passover and me leading you through all these, through the wilderness and all this? Jeez, you even have the Passover yearly to remember all this that I've done for you. Don't you remember that? Even from your youth, you would have remembered the Passover year after year. And I've done all these things, didn't I? Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So here we have the Nazarites who have taken that Nazarite vow to not drink wine, not cut your hair, and all these things. So they made them drink wine and even commanded the prophets to whom, you know, they were called to prophesy. They're saying, no, you, you shall not prophesy. So it's just complete getting in the way of all these ways of the Lord that they're doing here. So I want to pause there before we get into some of the other the helplessness of Israel that the Lord's going to hit on. You know, this reminds me of the, uh, in Revelation, the letters to the three church, to, the, to the seven churches. Uh, and if you take these eight oracles and you fold Israel and, and Judah, you know, into one, there's, there's seven oracles in a sense then. Mm-hmm. But, uh, here we don't see any good that they're doing at all itemized where in the Revelation churches there is some good that shows mm-hmm. up but there's also well, anyway I just thought of that comparison mm-hmm. again very very heavy law here you've yeah. done all this is just all wickedness yeah. that I am seeing this is the judgment that comes as a result of that okay. any other thoughts as we continue on and a lot of this is really repetitious, so once we kind of hit over it once, then we've been moving at a pretty good, pretty good rate here. In verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. So study note marks that, you know, the sheaves would have been light, but when you get to the bottom, they're crushed by the total weight of all of them. So then here we get another instance of seven. So here we get the seven ways that, you know, the Israelites are going to be helpless. Again, we have this complete helplessness of Israel here. Number one, flight shall perish from the swift. Two, the strong shall not retain his strength. Three, nor shall the mighty save his life. Four, he who handles the bow shall not stand. Five, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Six, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. Seven, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So all these things of the, the flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong will become weak, they won't retain their strength, nor shall the mighty save his life, just the complete helplessness of the people of Israel Israel here. I've done all these things. This is how you have repaid me. This is the helplessness that will come as we continue on. So these are the first, these are the eight oracles that Amos is proclaiming against these nations. So then we're going to be continuing on into 
Israel's guilt and punishment. So he spends a good, good bit of time on all of this. So he's, again, building up. We saw that for the, through the first seven of this is the furthest nations from you. We're getting closer and closer, and bam, here's the punishment. And he spends, as you see, all the past seven oracles, they're fairly brief. Just a couple verses. For three and four transgressions, I will not turn back. This, fire, move on to the next one. Pretty brief. But here, as we see with Oracle 8, we start all the way on the left-hand column of 1460 and just ends on the right. So he spends this great amount, this great deal of time speaking against them. And he'll continue on in chapter 3 here. There aren't any other thoughts, comments? All right. 3 verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family, Abraham's family, that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So again, the Lord is saying, you only have I known. You are my chosen people. I've done all these things. This is how you're repaying me. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And then here we get another instance of seven used here, of the Lord giving these, asking these seven questions, to which all the answers are obviously no. First one, do, you, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No, that would be foolish. Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? No. Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Well, no, if there's no trap, he's not going to fall into the snare. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No, only whenever you accidentally stick your finger in it with the mousetrap snap. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? No, whenever the trumpets blow, you know the army's coming. You know, pick up your spears, get ready to fight. The army's coming to town here. And finally, seven, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? No. So the Lord has brought, is the one who's going to be bringing these disasters upon them. Verse seven, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants the prophets. So the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? So again, we get this language, this imagery of the lion roaring, all these things. You know, the trumpet, everyone's going to be afraid when they hear the trumpet sound, obviously. Are you not going to be afraid whenever the lion roars? Should you not flee? Should you not be afraid from that? Verse 9, proclaim the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. So proclaim all this to the strongholds, the strongholds in the different 
nations here and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains and see the great tumults oppressed in her midst. So they do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. What a, what a way of saying it. They don't know how to do right. They don't know what is right from wrong here. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So this imagery of them storing up all this violence, this storing up of this wickedness that they've committed. And the Lord is going to be sending this fiery judgment upon them. So they've stored it up in their strongholds. And that's specifically what the Lord is, has spoken of throughout all these different oracles of these strongholds that will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, so these strongholds of Gaza. So he's specifically wiping out these places here, these strongholds of them. So that is where they have stored up violence and robbery. Verse 11, Therefore thus says the Lord God, An adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. So the nations will be surrounded and bring down your defenses Breaking down the gate, the gate bar, all of those things. Bring down your defenses, and then their strongholds will be plundered. All those things that they've stored up for themselves from the wickedness that they've committed elsewhere, that will be plundered from them. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the 